Welcome to The Sharp End. I'm Craig Brown, Senior Multi-Asset Investment Specialist for the Rathbone Multi-Asset Funds. I'm joined as usual by David Coombs and Will McIntosh-White, Fund Managers for the Rathbone Multi-Asset Funds. Morning, gents. Morning. Good morning. On this month's episode, David, Will and I are going to be talking about commodities, which were a hot topic of conversation in 2022, but perhaps a little less so this year. We'll then be turning our gaze on the world of AI to discuss the opportunities and pitfalls presented by this potentially revolutionary developments in the last 12 months. And finally, we're going to discuss Adobe, including how the fortunes of the company might be impacted by AI. But I can't start the show, though, without noting this episode marks our two-year anniversary at The Sharp End. So happy birthday to us, and thanks to all of our listeners uh, for your support over the last couple of years. Season three has been renewed and uh, will be out uh, the following month. Before we get on the show, as usual, here are the latest do's and don'ts to keep us all on the straight and narrow. This podcast is intended for professional investors and must not be shared with a non-professional audience. Any views and opinions are those of the investment manager and coverage of any assets must be taken into context of the constitution of the fund and in no way reflect investment recommendations. Past performance should not be seen as an indication of future performance. Right, Jen. So let's kick things off with that discussion around commodities. And as I mentioned earlier, last year was one of the hottest topics around given surging prices across energy, industrials, ag commodities. And as ever during periods of inflation, a lot of discussion on gold. Regular listeners will, of course, be aware that we question whether it's actually an inflation hedge at all, quite frankly, the, the precious metal. But in 2022, the sector was a good source of portfolio protection from that surging inflation. But through the end of last year and really from the back end of summer, commodities really began to roll over as as inflation expectations cooled. And equally, um, we saw some supply chain issues uh, alleviated. As many listeners may remember, we did sell our commodity exposure. We had some basket-based ETFs around sort of summer last year. But with commodities now having fallen so far across the board, and with events like the China reopening, OPEC production cuts, and the recent escalations in Ukraine, Could we potentially be back to commodities once again being an interesting source of potential portfolio returns, David? Well, it's it's difficult. You've got to break commodities down into its various subsectors. Obviously, you've got industrial metals, you've got agriculture, precious metals, uh, and energy, of course. As you say, inflation appears to be coming down, maybe not be coming down quite as quickly as people think. That might accelerate over the next couple of months. We'll, We'll wait and see. Um, certainly, as, as you say, commodity prices have come down. I think the world has, if we talk just about agricultural for a minute, the world is adapting to the, the shortage in agricultural commodities following the Russia-Ukraine conflict, albeit the bombing of the dam this week has, has reasserted concerns around certain uh, agricultural commodity supply. We've also had you know, some, some disappointing growth numbers from China, which obviously has an impact on, on other Asian economies and, and global demand for industrial metals, also agricultural commodities as well. We've got consensus amongst many economists and strategists may not be shared by fund managers, but certainly in an analytical world that we're almost nailed on to go into recession. So it's, it's not surprising that, that these commodity prices are, are, are hitting these lows. So, you know, having got out, do we go back in? I guess, well, it was your question, wasn't it? And I, I've, so far I've managed to avoid <laughs> answering it. So perhaps I should answer it. Um, Oh, I don't know. I think it's really helpful. <laughs> Thanks um, for that insight, David. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, yeah. Obviously, we haven't bought them, so that's that's the first thing 
to mention. Um, we do have a position in gold. Let me start with gold. Um, I don't want to spend too much on this because we have discussed it before, but yeah, we, we do see gold as a stagflation hedge. We also think gold starts to look more attractive once you've gone past peak rates. It's not clear we're at peak rates yet. Um, gold price has been supported, I think, because of the Russia-Ukraine war last year and this year. I think gold would have been weaker if it hadn't been for that. So we are holders of gold, but we're not aggressive holders. And I don't, we're not really aggressively adding it at the moment either. I think on gold, I, I don't see any real stimulant really to, to, to add. I think on industrial metals, there is um, support for moving back in, I think, as a hedge, not as a prediction that we're going to see them higher. If China were to surprise to the upside with some big economic stimulus that certainly hasn't been announced so far, that could get people excited again about growth surprising on the upside in that part of the world. And that might find its way through to positive sentiment on industrial metals. So I can't say I feel that strongly that I want to buy it, but I can see it looks a little bit more interesting. I think that's the point though, isn't it? It's, it's when we bought these originally, it is all about hedging the portfolio, right? We're not sat there going, oh, we think there's going to be a big spike in metals or agricultural products or energy. Um, energy in particular is the one w- which we've always looked to hedge because it's so important to you know, the global economy and, and can have such a spillover effect into the rest of the portfolio if you see a spike. And in I think 2020, we started building these, bit of 2021. And for us, that was sort of a hedge against a bit of inflation. Certainly didn't quite expect the inflation we picture we found ourselves in again. And as you said, it feels to us like inflation is on the way down. So using these as a natural inflation hedge, if you think inflation is likely to continue to go down, doesn't seem that sensible. But if inflation is stickier, these things could prove to help in that kind of environment. But it's also, you know, whilst they were an inflation hedge, they were kind of inflation hedge because they were the driver of inflation in the particular environment we've been through. And again, going forward, I guess, they could well be the driver of a resurgence in inflation or the driver that keeps inflation stickier, you know, with energy in particular. And I know, you know, it's not like we've completely taken out our energy hedges. We still own the all majors, for example. But you mentioned China opening back up, you know, OPEC have cut production again. You know, Saudi are pretty keen to keep oil prices in the 70s, maybe towards the 80s, given they've got a lot of funding to do. And then you've got areas like the US who's run down their strategic reserves pretty materially. I think they're the lowest level Mm. since the 80s. And they have talked about building those back up because they sold most of them out at 90 plus dollars a barrel. Um, And they can now, what are we, 70-ish, 70 and a bit. You know, it's a pretty profitable piece of business Mm. to start buying back at these kind of levels. So outside of the slowing in general developed market economies, which should lead to a slightly weaker oil price, there are plenty of reasons out there or risks out there, I guess, which one of or a combination of could push, you know, oil in particular back higher. Um, Now, do you want to take it direct or would you rather just keep your exposure through the majors, which still arguably if oil stays at these levels, look Pretty good value, you know, still generating huge amounts of free cash flow. The other thing to take into account, though, is we have been adding duration to portfolios. 
And, you know, obviously that duration will do well if recession does pick up or we see rates unexpectedly, in our view, come down. Of course, commodities are the kind of diversifier to that in a way, because if that doesn't happen because growth surprises on the upside or inflation proves stickier, for example, driven either by energy, I mean, that that, that would be the point. And therefore, I, I, do commodities give you a better diversifier now given where yields are and rates are. That, I mean, that's from a purely portfolio of diversification point of view, they're probably more interesting because of the, uh, your positioning elsewhere. So whether you think commodities go up or down is kind of not really the point in some respects. It's do they now have some value just as that protection? And I guess the answer to that is probably yes. Certainly energy and agriculture, well, actually, and industrial metals all probably tick that box. So... I'm feeling a little bit more, I don't want to use the word bullish, but certainly, because that is definitely not the right word, but certainly in terms of, I think, start worth us considering adding them back to the portfolio, not with any huge enthusiasm, but thinking that actually it kind of probably does make a bit more sense. It's interesting that Saudi made that big announcement of supporting the oil price. It's been marginally successful, I, I guess. In it was under- a little bit smaller cut than I think people were expecting as well. I think it was only about a million barrels a day yes. they were cutting. And I think people thought a bit more might come. So why do it? You know, that's that, a bit, bit odd, really. Maybe it's a kind of intense signal that, you know, we are, you know, we're not cutting aggressively, but we're ready to cut if need be. Maybe, maybe it's a shot across the bows. Um, yeah, but I like to have fun with intended, the speculators. But, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, well, yeah, exactly. So, I think what it does mean is you, you definitely go back to your point, Will. You know, I feel very comfortable with our oil majors positions. We've we certainly been adding to them recently. They've been a bit weaker as the oil price has come back. To, I mean, we the West Texas went through $69 at one stage a week ago. And and the, and the prices of the oil stocks have kind of reflected that. So I, I, I do think adding on weakness to oil stocks is, is a bit of a no-brainer here, to be honest. I was just going to say one of the bits I've been surprised about is the – agricultural side you know if you look at wheat prices yeah they're back to 2021 levels Mm. now you've still got a war going on in ukraine as you pointed out you know you've had the that dam which is called massive flooding climate seems to be difficult generally everywhere you know there's a lot of drought knocking around Mm. and yet most commodity prices in the agricultural space have, have drifted back down so i do find that slightly odd I don't really have an answer around why that why that is. And of course, food inflation is still pretty is it pretty is. high, right? And and I understand. I mean, not not an expert in this area, but I understand that's largely because contracts are twelve months, and they, we we joked about this the other time the other day. It takes a while for the lower agricultural commodity <laughs> prices to be reflected in retail food prices, and yet it seems to go quite quickly up yeah. <laughs> when it goes the other way. So uh, yeah, whether we take a pinch of salt or not, I don't know. So again, if if food price inflation does stay sticky, and I think this is particularly in the UK actually, then again, maybe we we do need to think about adding some uh, ags back into the portfolio. Obviously, we, we, we do have some exposure to agriculture to the equity markets, but, but not through commodities. The other issue, of course, we have to consider for – do you then hedge the currency? Because whilst obviously all the all of these commodities price in US dollars, and and you, you can't make one decision without the other. So I suspect if you think that you were buying these commodities to protect against UK inflation, then you might expect sterling to be vulnerable in that scenario. 
because real yields would be very negative, you'd probably need to hedge that commodity exposure. I think the other element as well is if you if you get into a reacceleration of commodity you know of commodity prices, that adds what at the moment is a deflationary impact in U.S. inflation numbers. That moves that back to inflationary, and with other areas being a bit more stubborn, you know, inflation from the energy side, the deflation there, it's been quite helpful. If that goes away, you wonder whether again the Fed start to think well. Actually, do we need to hike for longer? That probably ends up a bit dollar dollar positive, net net. You know, given where the dollar moved last year in response to the more aggressive Fed hiking policy. So you wonder whether actually there's a you know, might end up with a bit of dollar strength plus sterling weakness, of course, as a result of changing Fed expectations. If you notice what we've actually done, we've actually snuck in basically talking about inflation and we've just called it commodities. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Very clever, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Who said we could ever get away from inflation chat in this day and age, eh? Uh, well, with that, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll move on to our next topic. And it really is a change of topic. So apologies for the, uh, the outright whiplash you're probably going to have as a result of this, this, this change. But we're going to turn our focus to the hottest topic out there at the moment, which is, which is AI. Now, as I'm sure you've all seen, you, know, you cannot move for AI coverage at the moment, whether it be the potential revolutionary positive benefits or the fear-mongering coverage explaining how we're at risk of a real-life Skynet. And for those of you who are less familiar with that, it's the AI that destroyed humankind in you know the Terminator movies. And whilst last year, though, we did sort of rail against, or actually more 2021, actually, we did rail against crypto and NFTs as being a bit of nonsense, really. We never felt it was the game changer that lots of people got excited about. We do kind of think some of this hype around AI, AI is justified. This is a real, um, a, a real piece of technology that's going to really change the way that some businesses and some parts of the economy um, operate. But with any period of sort of thematic-based hype, there's a lot of expectation that gets baked in, a lot of companies working hard to jump on the bandwagon, whether it's justified or not. Again, remember back to the first crypto hype days of that company called Long Island Ice Tea Corp, who made lemonade and iced tea, changed their name to Long Blockchain, and suddenly their stock rallied by 500%. That kind of nonsense, I think you always have to watch out for. But ultimately, there's going to be some real winners and some real losers out of this. So, Will, why don't you start us off by discussing how we're going to approach this and kind of unpick where those winners, losers and outright nonsense hype is. Okay. Uh, well, I think you've missed a trick there because obviously AI is going to be a great deflationary force, Craig. So, you know, stop there, talking there, about there was your chance. There was your chance. Um, <laughs> But I guess a couple of reasons, you know, why is this particularly relevant now? And that's the market leadership that we've seen this year, you know, which has been particularly narrow. And it almost feels to me that this year people have been a bit on the defensive. There's been cash on the sidelines and AI has gathered some momentum since ChatGPT was released last year and sort of accelerated this year. And obviously went sort of parabolic off NVIDIA's numbers um, when they massively raised guidance. And I think a lot of market participants are sat there going, well, I need a reason to buy more equities because, you know, the economy's slowing and nothing's really changed from that perspective. And yet the market's going up and I'm underweight. And maybe this is that sort of hype has given an opportunity to go, well, actually, this is a whole new thing. It's going to drive markets higher. I want to buy whoever looked like they might be the winners in this space. So in terms of the winners, I, it's dangerous to say this, but I feel like it's going to be relatively obvious. And the market's obviously gravitated to NVIDIA uh, largely because you could see almost they are already one of the winners here, selling huge amounts of 
you know, chips into this space. But then it's the ones who have been active in this space for a number of years. And, you know, in a funny way, we haven't really talked about AI for a few years, but back when we used to talk about unpicking the fangs, if you remember, um, we used to talk about the sort of the side positive, if that's a phrase, of owning Amazon and Alphabet and Microsoft was that they were the leaders in the AI space. You know, they were ones who five plus years ago, many of them been at it for the last 10 years, have been funneling a lot of money into AI. Uh, at times, I think some people were questioning the capital allocation of this because it was a lot of money with not a lot of return. But I think that is being shown now as they are the ones who are the clear leaders in this space. And I don't think, you know, it was interesting. I think the CEO of Amazon was out there saying that, you know, there are others who don't want to build this. You know, it takes years of investment. It takes billions of investment to produce these language models. Um, what they want is someone to have that for them that they can leverage within a platform, within the cloud, uh, ultimately, and apply it to their businesses and to their own data sets. And so I think, as you say, ultimately, you know, the hype around NVIDIA, you know, the valuation on NVIDIA has gone through the roof. You know, I think it's exceeded even some of the most bullish analysts' price targets. Um, I mean, it was pretty spicy. I don't know what the next one up is from <laughs> spicy, but that's probably where yeah. it is. I mean, it's, it's worth pointing out that we have trimmed our position into this move as we have with microsoft alphabet amazon we've trimmed them all the last week or so as the hype has heightened the risk of a valuation overshoot so from a pra purely practical point of view that that narrowness of the market is is being very marked fortunately we've had most of those names in the portfolio albeit we don't benchmark ourselves against index but we've had we've had all those names and we've been taking profits we're certainly not selling our holdings these are long-term winners but i think it's prudent given the hype and it is hype no doubt about it you know you've got headlines in the time saying you know We've got two years to save the world, Rishi, or something completely crazy. But if we take out the, the dystopian elements of this and just try and strip it back into, you know, the practical day-to-day, -day, how how do we need to think about this? It's really important we we, we separate the chat GBT with the AI overall, because AI is going to be a massive productivity advantage for certain sectors. You know, if you think about robotics, what that did to manufacturing over the last 30 years, think AI is going to do to the white collar type industry, service industries, financial services, legal, etc. And AI is already used in distribution as well as we know. To me, it's about looking for those companies that are going to use AI to drive productivity gains and margin advancement. That, that takes IA into boring financial accounting, but that's ultimately what we have to try and do. So on the positive side, you, know, you look at companies like Shopify that's going to use things like ChatGPT to help make web design updates more efficient and off-the-shelf kind of web designs for small businesses. All, all of that kind of kind of makes sense. Uh, on the other side, you know, we've clearly got to look at who are the losers, right? There are always losers when you get a, a, a step change in technology. And I think this is a step change. It is like the internet. It is like the invention of the car. It is like, I don't know, the invention of uh, something else that's been <laughs> sliced. Whatever. <laughs> I, I'm from Wales. There weren't too many. Uh, you know, will AI replace this podcast? I mean, obviously not, right? That's impossible. <laughs> so, I, I, I mean, Ralk's share price took a bit of it. We hold Ralk's and it took a, a small hit. It wasn't a big hit a few weeks ago. People, oh, suddenly it's the end of Ralk's. And I think, again, we've got to think about 
where does ChatGPT get the information? And, and this is a bit of a crass kind of comparison. But if we think about Wikipedia, you know, would you bet your la- your life or if you were in, in court, would you rely on the accuracy of Wikipedia? No, of course you wouldn't because the data is not totally reliable. And it, it's the same with AI. If the data is not reliable, you get poor outcomes. And so what this really means is that data security is even more important and copyright laws and the uh, the upholding of copyright laws in a digital world and, and you know will legislation keep up to speed with this that that's pretty crucial and as we know legislators have not necessarily covered themselves in glory since the internet's been invented and even now we're still not quite sure where we want to be in terms of monitoring social media so these are re- you know, these are the real world day-to-day things we need to consider about whether it's the end of the world and Arnie gets beaten up by a robot I mean, we'll leave that to to others but I think in terms of how we think about it we are certainly looking at RELCs talking to management trying to understand where they see the threats from AI and also the opportunities that they will have as well inevitably if I look across the portfolio frankly I don't see a lot of companies that are help that we use that sorry we invest in that are heavily reliant on selling data to the world. You know, we don't own some of the ratings agencies, data scoring agencies, you know, um, the experience of this world, the transunions. We don't really play in those areas. So can't be complacent about these things. But at the moment, I feel okay with where we are. Yeah, I mean, it was Chegg, wasn't it, that that really saw yeah, it's, yeah. it's the poster child of disruption at the moment, which I think fell 50% on results because, you know, students, Chegg is an online education business and students, instead of using their services, were ultimately using chat GPT. And, and so perhaps if you're a student and you see a cost advantage, you're not so worried about where the data is coming from. Um, but that data piece is going to be key. And so someone described, I quite liked as the, the sort of, scientists are the chefs um <laughs> cloud is the kitchen and data is the ingredients and i think that's that's right to certain, <laughs> you know who's got the ai you know the power of ai and who's been building that ai capabilities the cloud is going to be absolutely key to hosting all of this and so and as it turns out i think many of those players are one and the, the same, same yeah and some of these more startup ai businesses are just getting swallowed anyway by your alphabets and, uh, I mean, this, this yeah, we, we hate historic comparisons, right? I think we've mentioned that in every podcast. But if you do look at the internet, it's really important to understand that the, the winners of the internet were not necessarily the first movers. They weren't even the people who designed it or built it mm. or enabled it through technology. Ultimately, it was, it was the businesses built around the technology that made the money. The last point I kind of want to make about the narrowness of the market and how it's been driven is that, yes, it has been a narrow list of stocks leading the indices, but they have been some of the biggest constituents in the indices. And it's a real risk actually not holding these from here, I think, mm. because uh, you need to have exposure to this AI in the same way you need to have exposure to the cloud, because ultimately almost every business model is going to involve these technologies over the next five to 10 years. Well, I think that's right. And as you say, I think in, in when the internet came along, you didn't know who the winners were going to be. I'd say in this one, I, I think I think we do, and I think they are those big names that we own with those capabilities. I think we can have more confidence. I think it takes yeah. a very brave for manager to short yeah. those stocks. Uh, and we're certainly well, we don't short stocks, but even if we could, 
we wouldn't. <laughs> exactly. So the enablers and the enabled uh, are the, the, the targets on this one. So final topic, uh, let's turn our attention to Adobe. And I'd imagine most of our listeners have probably heard of Adobe from the rather famous Acrobat software and PDF files that have been around for some 30 odd uh, years, helping us all with our digital needs uh, in, in, in offices across uh, the globe. However, there is so much more to Adobe as a full waterfront coverage software package really for for. Uh, digital designers, digital marketeers, and their solutions for a long time have really been seen as the gold standard in the space. But recently, obviously, with AI developments coming along, there have been some questions around how solid their position is in certain areas like Photoshop, etc., and whether this could be a threat to their position. So I thought it was a very good time for us perhaps discuss Adobe again and really what kind of makes us comfortable that in the face of these threats, they're still going to retain their dominant market position there. Yeah, I mean, I think if, if you've got to think about Adobe as being almost the apple of the creative industries in, in a way. And a lot of us might mess around with a bit of Photoshop here and look at a PDF there. But yeah, if you're if you're an artist or you're in the creative industries or you're in marketing design, etc., Adobe is kind of your your Apple or your Microsoft. It, it really is the, the kind of waterfront of of this type of software and you mentioned photoshop there are other software businesses out there that, that rival photoshop but the point is they don't have everything else with adobe they have this huge breadth of software kit to help to, to support a business a bit like microsoft does right i don't think teams is the best video conferencing facility i think it's zoom but You've got everything else that's Microsoft on your on your desktop, so you, you you move to Teams. I think Adobe benefits a little bit from that. But on top of that, you know, when I went to the Adobe uh, Max meeting in in LA, what struck me was the development towards I just talked about earlier about about copyright and maintaining copyright of digital artworks and digital designs. And so, if you're if you're David Hockney, for example, who is starting to produce art. On your iPad, how do you ensure that what you design has your digital signature on it and it's it's safe for all time and it cannot be hacked or copied or whatever? And Adobe at the forefront of putting layers of security into protecting that kind of copyright. And whether it's a photograph that you've taken or, or an illustration that you've put together, Adobe is providing the kind of technology, the sophisticated technology. We're a long way from Acrobat. Right. And they can afford and it's a bit uh, again, it's a parallel with Charles Schwab, which we've talked about before. You know, when, when they when they reduce their transaction costs to zero to kill Robin Hood, right? This is kind of what Adobe does with Photoshop or DocuSign or, or their their equivalent of DocuSign, the digital signatory software that they provide. They provide that whereas DocuSign only provide e-signatures. So they can afford to undercut in each segment their key competitors who don't have their waterfront and they can bundle and package. 95% of Adobe's customers pay a monthly subscription. Mm. And that was a massive change for a number of years ago because you know a number of years ago they were a licensing business, much like Microsoft actually as well. They have a lot of these businesses that have that kind of package-based solution of move to subscription, which has clearly given them a better resilience of, of revenue. And to give listeners an idea, you know, their kind of creative business solutions package is about 62 quid a month. And again, if you're a digital marketeer, freelance or employed, you know, 62 quid a month is 
probably a pretty worthwhile spend to get Photoshop, InDesign, Acrobat, their new piece of kit, you know, Adobe Firefly, which is there to use generative AI to support with image creation. You know, you get over 20 dex- desktop and mobile applications. So again, it really is that that all-encompassing sort of network almost, David, as you said, you know, with reference to Apple. The other thing that we've got with Adobe is the sort of investment back into the business and how much of an innovator they are. And I'm going to bring back a bit of AI here um, because Adobe is, again, one of the leaders in this space. You know, they've been building their own AI under something called Firefly. And you can essentially generate images on sort of text instruction. There is a fantastic video on YouTube you can access to see this and you can almost circle a part of the picture and type in, I'll add red arrow yeah. Um, and it brings in a red arrow and, it, and it's done in such a way it looks absolutely fantastic. I've used some rivals in this space um, to see what else I could create. And I have to say the difference in quality is absolutely astounding. Um, and the other side of it is, you know, you're talking about that sort of IP protection. This is all IP safe. So anything you use from Adobe, it's all from their data. So you can have no problems about in no issues around infringing copyright. And that AI also gets applied to their digital marketing piece. So it's interesting to say, you know, consumers expect businesses to be digital first and have a sort of seamless experience. And everything they are doing is to enable that. And in particularly retailers and anyone really with a dig- digital presence um, is looking to make sure that, you know, it's very easy for the consumer to use, that it's increasingly personalized. And, you know, we talked about AI and I thought a couple of interesting examples that Adobe have from implementing AI within their digital marketing division. Uh, They had a client who had a loan calculator. So if you imagine, you know, you're going to take out a loan, it calculates how much you need to pay back. And they found that that increased um, conversion rates, actually, who signed up for the loan by 4%, So that was highlighted by the AI Mm. um, to them. And then the AI suggested where they put it somewhere more prominently on their website. And then that resulted in a 10% increase in conversion. So these sort of real world examples of where you can, you know, you talked about increasing productivity and cutting cost. There is a very clear way where AI can actually help to increase your revenues on the top line. The other thing with Adobe is, I'd say, I went to the, the Adobe Max, which is kind of their equivalent of the Warren Buffett AGM, right? In this, in, in just, I'll just give you a flavor. It, it, it's held at the, where the LA Lakers play basketball, right? This is, it's a huge conference center bowl. Where's about, there's four to 5,000 people go to this AGM, right? We've never had that at the Rathbones AGM. I can tell you that. And basically the leaders of each part of the business come in and explain the latest developments in whether it's creative design, etc. And there's mass cheering from these are their customers and shareholders. The leaders of these various sects are almost like pop stars where they're, they're greeted as they come on the stage. I, I didn't recognize any of them, but they were clearly <laughs> recognized by the crowds of people who are wedded to Adobe. It's obviously embedded in, in how they do their work. It's a utility for them. There's huge customers, loyalty and support here, which, you know, is, is pretty phenomenal. I, I, I've blown away by that, but it hasn't been reflected in the share price. I mean, it's, it's kind of traded a little bit like, um, like a COVID winner in that it did very well through, through the early stages of COVID and got up to $700 and then fell to 300 last year. I mean, it got absolutely created and we've, we've added all the way down to that and it's now recovered to, back over 400. So it has taken had a bit of tech rally this this year, but it's still and it's you know like most big tech stocks we're not saying it's a cheap valuation. 
but it's it's not gone to the moon and back like some of the other ones we mentioned earlier. And I I I, I still think it's I, I'm not convinced it's fully understood everywhere as just how powerful it is. I think that's a good point though, because again, like people look at the value and it's a bit, but actually, 25 times next year roughly speaking, which, look, it's not cheap by any stretch of the imagination, but you look at some of the other players in that space and, you know, it, it, it's it's a lot less challenging, I suppose. And then you look at things like their you know, 86% gross margins, very low levels of debt. You've got a very high quality, um, you know, stream of revenues with a subscription, a very low customer base, as you've said, a big moat around the business, you know, in a number of ways in terms of the quality, the copyright infringement, you know, it just... It just looks like one of those businesses you want to own for a very long time, um, essentially. Well, as the world moves to digital, it just feels it's 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 the right business to be in to 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 benefit from that move to digital, but also to make that safe. So yeah, it, I'm a very happy holder. Excellent. Well, now it's time to move on to any other business, the part of the show where, as you all know by now, we each get to have a bit of a grumble about something that's happened in uh, the last month. Um, this month, I'll kick things off, as I normally defer to uh, to Will and David, but I'll kick things off. My first one is is lights in hotel rooms, which sounds a little bit weird and abstract, but as uh, my colleagues will tell you, I spent a lot of time in hotel rooms, traveling the length and breadth of the country to speak to our, our, our clients and spend many a night in a hotel room. And I've noticed a trend, uh, a very alarming and annoying trend in hotel rooms that the big light seems to have disappeared. Um, there is no big light in the middle of the room anymore to illuminate my, my 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 room. I have to walk around and turn on various lamps and different switches. The other day I was in a hotel in Bristol, I had to turn on eight different lights to illuminate my room, which I just thought was a little bit over the top. You know, eight different lights in different corners and different buttons, and then turning them all off before you go to bed is also another very frustrating thing. So I would like to lobby the hotel industry for the return of the big light, please. Fair enough. Right, Rant over. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't disagree with that. I can't disagree with that. Go there, David. Over, over to you. What's your uh, AOB for the month? Uh, okay. So um, I went to the Chelsea Flower Show recently. A uh, very enjoyable day out it was too. Um, and I noticed that, um, frankly, some of the gardens were a bit of a mess because uh, we're all into resilient flowers now, which I used to call weeds. And, uh, and wilding, which I call lazy gardening. Um, this was also accompanied by a, a, an article that I thought was quite interesting by a number of gardeners that said that mowing lawns was now a sign of the patriarchy control and that we should cease with, and I thought this was a great idea. Now, uh, admittedly, the comments line in the Telegraph took, took umbrage at this, but I thought it was fantastic. I went, immediately said to Tracy that me mowing the lawn was a sign of patriarchy control. And as an ardent feminist, I think she should start cutting the lawn. I also extrapolated that to emptying the bins and washing the cars. Um, Tracy being uh, uh, decided that despite being a feminist, uh, she felt this was complete nonsense. And I did not manage to change anything. <laughs> In, and I'm still mowing the lawn and pulling out weeds. So walking up and down with your fly mow. That's <laughs> a window Basically. into David's weekend. Just to make it very clear, what a load of nonsense. <laughs> well, I shall have to remember that one myself for when my garden looks overgrown and I just say to my friends, well, don't worry, it's a rewilding project. I'm not just incredibly lazy and can't bother to cut my grass. Craig, we all know you've got a gardener because you're in hotels the whole time. That is also true. What time do I get to cut my I'm I'm walking around half the time searching for those blooming lights. Uh, Will? Um, well, as you know, Craig, uh, we were crossing Finsbury Circus uh, the other day, which is a patch of grass and, and just outside the office. 
And there was somebody with a personal trainer hammering away, sort of boxing away, making a loud noise and grunting away as they did it. And I turned and said to Craig, you know what, that, I really don't like that. It's just, get, just go in the gym, you know, where everybody else is. Don't sort of disrupt people and try and have a nice lunch on the green. And Craig sort of nodded um, in agreement. And then uh, turns out, didn't it, Craig, that um, <laughs> you recently had a PT session uh, where unfortunately your calf gave way it did, sadly. And you collapsed to the ground. I said, well, that must have been uh, a bit unfortunate. You said it was particularly embarrassing because you were in the middle of the village green having your PT session. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my nosy, curtain-twitching neighbours were obviously probably looking out there, uh, chortling away, sadly. But uh, yeah, so I did have to kind of just nod at your point, Will, thinking, Will will never know that I do this myself, <laughs> of course. And one day I had to come clean, Will. So I do apologise if you ever visit the... Uh, the, the, the lovely little town I live in, you, you may see me jumping up and down the green with a, you know, with a medicine ball of some description. Not, not for a few weeks. Though. Not for a few weeks. No, no, I'm <laughs> off. As my wife likes to remind me, perhaps I am now indeed too old for these more explosive and active pursuits. Uh, maybe golf or something like that is more my speed. Right. But thank you all for joining us. And we hope you'll join us again next month for the next installment of The Sharp End, uh, which, as I said earlier, will be season three. If you didn't listen at the time, please feel free to go back and listen to our earlier episodes. Last month, Will, David and I discussed the latest developments for the Fed and the US economy along with the hotly debated property sector and finally the US insulation and roofing business Owens Corning. You can subscribe to the podcast on all the major podcasting platforms and please don't forget to hit subscribe or the follow button and also rate and review us if you have a few moments as well. If you'd like to hear more about the Rathbone multi-asset funds please speak to your usual Rathbone sales contact or visit the website at www.rathbonefunds.com. Thanks again. Thanks again.